0: All right, well, good morning, Shore Church. Um, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 32. Let me introduce myself if you don't know me. My name is Jordan. I'm the director of youth and discipleship at the Shore. Really excited to preach and teach in this text today. Um, So yeah, again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Psalm chapter 32. We're continuing in our series, flourishing in self-isolation on the book of Psalms. And today we're going to hammer down on a really great topic, and it's the graciousness of God. And we'll see that all throughout this text. And we'll see how sitting amidst the grace that God has for us will lead us into ever-increasing joy, life, and ultimately flourishing. But in order for us to see just how amazing God's grace is for us, we're going to have to do some difficult work here. We're going to have to do the difficult work of remembering why we need His grace. So, this sermon's really gonna have kind of two distinct parts, kind of bad news, good news part. It's gonna be a lot like watching uh, first Avengers Infinity War, where the Avengers just get destroyed. Thanos comes, takes all the stones, snaps his fingers. Then the second half's gonna be like Avengers Endgame, where the heroes come back, they take the stones back, there's a big sacrificial death at the end, and the heroes win. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, think maybe Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And if you still don't know what I'm talking about, you're in quarantine, go watch some movies. All right, so that's where we're going today. Um, this psalm is probably labeled in your Bible as a masculine psalm. Masculine, meaning enlightened or wise. So, this psalm, along with only a handful of others, are meant to impart wisdom on the reader. And when it comes to flourishing in our lives today, the wisdom here, I believe, is the most important wisdom. The psalm is so rich in wisdom that the Apostle Paul actually quotes it in Romans 4, 7, and 8 when he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In studying this psalm, I I found it almost uses, if I can just nerd out a little bit here, it uses the literary technique or the storytelling technique of in medias res, where it kind of jumps to a climax, jumps to the most important thing right away. Think, think movies like, maybe like Interstellar or Forrest Gump, in that it starts off in a full sprint, a moment of beautiful truth, life-giving wisdom. And ultimately, the climax here isn't just at the beginning, but it's the climax of the entire story of the Bible, and then from there, it kind of works backwards and gives us a higher view of how we got to that opening. And then it ties it all together for us. So w- without further ado, um, I got some of my Thursday night youth friends to read the text for us. So go ahead, guys. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and who's in spirit. There is no deceit. For when I kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer i acknowledge you i acknowledge my sin to you and i did not cover my iniquity i said i will confess confess my transgressions to the lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are in a hiding place from me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, but not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and brittle, uh, or, you, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteousness, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you to Levi, Kate, Tristan, Caden, Hannah, and Hannah's Ferret but that's the first time you've ever seen a ferret in church. Um, So so like I said, I'm going to attack this psalm really in two parts that are going to feel a lot different. And even though the underlying truth of it all is really, really good news, it's going to be difficult for our souls to get there. It's going to feel like bad news. And, And my encouragement and my hope for you this morning is we don't get hung up on the bad news. The intention isn't me trying to make you feel bad, but it's to show you how great Jesus is and how amazing God's grace is for you. So so let me read the first five verses here for us and then we'll, uh, we'll get after it. So verse one, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And what he's doing is beautifully difficult. Yet it's extremely life giving. Commentators believe that King David is writing this not long after his adulterous, murderous act of sleeping with another man's wife and then murdering the husband. And he feels the weight and shame of this. He doesn't write away but he does in this moment. He feels the weight, the brokenness. He knows he sinned against God alone. He knows he's unworthy of grace and forgiveness, and the only way for him to be forgiven is out of an act of love and by God offering him grace, and God does. God shows him mercy and grace. It's an incredibly powerful moment that in the midst of his sin, though it takes him some time, he ultimately stops running from God. He doesn't sweep his sin under the rug, but he runs to God for grace and God says, forgiven. And so when we read verse one of this psalm, when David says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, commentators believe that the tone here is meant to be celebratory. And joyful and happy because David knew how guilty he was. He knew what he actually deserved, but at the same time, he knows just how gracious and merciful God is that he wipes him clean from all of his shortcomings. In fact, if you got into the literal Hebrew translation of the very first line, blessed is the man, that translates to, oh, how happy is the man. So he's full of joy and happiness because he knows his sins are forgiven. That's the response of David and ultimately what our response should be as well to the grace of God. But can we just admit that our response to God's grace isn't always like that? Not always that joyful. Maybe it's, even further the other way. Maybe it's indifference. It's definitely not always that ecstatic or full of awe and praise. Why is that? Why don't we marvel in the glory of the cross and God's grace on our lives like David does? Well, I believe God has two reasons why for us this morning. There's probably way more than two, but two reasons I see God pointing towards us this morning of why we don't respond to God's grace like David does. Number one, we don't feel the weight of our sin. And number two, we don't feel or, or really sense just how amazing Jesus' death on the cross is for us and how big of a deal that is. So that's, that's where we're going today. So first thing, could it be that we simply do not feel the weight of our sin or the things that we've done against God or we just don't think that they're really that bad? And in turn, we don't feel like we really need salvation or need grace. We might kind of casually say like, yeah, I've done this thing or I've broken that moral law or I've worshiped other things as God, but, but we don't feel the true weight of our sin or the grief that David felt amidst his. It's just this thing that's a part of our lives that honestly doesn't bother us all that much. And I think there's a common reason for this. And I'm not saying this is everyone, but search your heart and see if this is you a reason we don't feel the weight of our sin or really feel like we need his grace is that we have a misunderstanding or evaluation of our own goodness. Like despite the fact that the bulk of us, if not all of us, would not just do poorly but flat out fail consistently living out the simplest of commandments of God and we know it, or or we know that we choose ourselves as God again and again, we deceive ourselves into thinking we are better than we actually are. And that robs us from enjoying the grace of God. We'll be like, yeah, I'm a good guy, right? I'm, I'm a good person. Like, sure, I do this, or I don't do this thing I'm supposed to, but all in all, I'm a great guy, especially in comparison to those people, right? As if being better than another temporal human being with a sinful nature equates to me being good. Jesus defines goodness far differently than you and I. In Luke 18, he's asked by the rich young ruler, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So it seems that our definition of good and God's definition of good are different. So you might feel good when compared to the wicked people you see on the news or your friend who's done this, this, and this or your sibling who's done that or whoever but when we're put against the holy God? Or or how about this and I borrow this from another pastor. If you took your life, your goodness, your morality and you laid it out on a piece of paper like a report card and you put it next to the prophet Isaiah, okay? Okay to measure out morality and goodness, and and this isn't how it works, but what if they're like, we only have room in heaven for one more, either this guy right here or Isaiah. How's that gonna go for you in terms of goodness? You're gonna get smoked, like absolutely destroyed. It's not even close. But, But look what Isaiah, who's one of the most faithful men of God in history, says about himself in Isaiah 6, 5. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. He's essentially saying how dirty, how wicked, how sinful am I because he has just seen the holy God in person and his only response was to fall on his face like a dead man and drown in his own unworthiness. And so if Isaiah, who makes the best good person you know look like an absolute rookie or terrible person in comparison, if he says, I'm not good, I deserve to be killed, I'm not worthy of your presence, God, I'm not worthy of your forgiveness, then what does that say about me? In another lovely uh, spring Sunday morning verse, God says this about us in Isaiah 64. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds, all of our good works are like filthy, dirty, smelly rags to him. And so one reason why we might not feel the weight of our sin tends to be because we think we're intrinsically good or better than we actually are and we're not actually in need of grace or saving. And let me tell you why that's such a big deal because maybe you're like, Isn't it okay that I don't feel the weight of my sin? Shouldn't that mean that I'm growing and doing well? Actually the opposite, because if you don't feel the weight of your sin, then you cannot possibly glory in the finished work of Jesus dying on the cross for you. And if you don't glory in Jesus dying on the cross for you, you cannot possibly worship fully and you were created to worship Jesus fully. So by not understanding the depth and depravity and the wickedness and the feeling of grief of how dark your heart is, the very purpose that you were created for is non-existent. We have to get this if we're going to flourish in the way that God designed us to, and if we're going to get to the place where David was at, where we're saying, oh, how happy I am that Jesus has shown me grace. And that brings me to the second reason why we may not glory in the grace offered to us in Jesus. And I've teased parts of it a little bit already, but The other reason I believe we don't fully enjoy the grace of God could it be that Jesus dying on the cross isn't that big of a deal to us? It's just some story we've heard a hundred times. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins. And so we have Paul here, the most powerful man outside of Jesus to ever walk in our faith, who writes 75% of the New Testament books, writes incredible wisdom on everything from love, to marriage, to money, to gospel-centered community, to healing. He says, what's the most important thing? That Christ died for us. Our sins—that's of first importance. And so I have to wonder if another reason why we don't glory in the grace before us is because Jesus dying on the cross is not of first importance to us. Now I don't think we'd ever say that out loud. But if you're not able to respond to your sin in a way like David that makes you sing and shout, oh, how amazing God's grace is on my life. Or if you have sin that you've never confessed to Jesus or you're hanging on to an identity that is not in Jesus and you know it isn't satisfying you and you want something more, then I have to wonder, is Jesus dying on the cross of first importance to you? Look what David says in verse 3 of our psalm, talking about a moment when this wasn't of first importance, when he didn't run to Jesus. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This speaks of the time before David acknowledged his sin, before he confessed it. It's a time here spoken when he's just ignoring his sin of adultery and murder and just sweeping it under the rug. What does he say happens? He says he's wasting away. What is described here is the punishment inwardly afflicted upon us by our guilty consciences. When we don't see Jesus as our savior, when we don't give him everything, when we don't unpack the darkness of our hearts and give it all to him, this is what happens. One of my favorite theologians, Charles Spurgeon, he describes this punishment saying, what a killing thing sin is. It is a pestilent disease, a fire in the bosom. While we smother our sin, while we sweep it under the rug, it rages within us and like a gathering wound swells horribly and torments terribly. Or how about J.R. Dumolo who says, he refers to these words uh, either to, he says they might refer to either an actual sickness brought on by sin or a spiritual suffering represented by physical terminology. We waste away when we don't run to Jesus. In 1 John 1 verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins... He, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We were designed to glory in the atonement of the cross, to glory in the finished work of Jesus and bring everything to Jesus and be made new in Jesus. And so to help us not stay silent, like in verse three here, I want to put us directly into the story of the cross. And I mean the story of the cross. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit can help us feel the weight of it, be reminded of how beautiful it is, and our hearts would be open to receive God's grace like David did. So Jesus, okay, he rolls into Jerusalem and he has this big triumphal entry where everyone's so excited he's there because they're expecting him to come and overthrow their rulers and sit on a physical throne. But, but after a few days, it becomes apparent that he hasn't come to do it in the way that they want. And now all of a sudden, everyone just turns on him. And they begin to plot on how they're going to kill him and arrest him. So within a matter of days, people go from loving him and celebrating him to hating him with a passion. Has has anyone out there ever been turned against by people you thought had your back? Jesus empathizes with you on that. Then one night, soldiers came to arrest Jesus and his close friend, who was a close friend of his, one of his boys, Judas, points him out and betrays him with a kiss. One of Jesus' other disciples, Peter, he tries to fight back. He pulls out his sword and he cuts off one of the soldiers' ears and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 Peter, whoa. No one takes my life from me. I could stop this in a moment if I wanted to, I lay my life down freely. And then he, he picks up the guy's ear and he puts it back on his head. You'd think the arrest would be over there. And then Jesus is taken and, and he's illegally persecuted in the court. The man who questions him, Pilate, he comes to the conclusion that Jesus has done nothing wrong and he just wants to give him a slap on the wrist to appease the mob out there. But, but the mob doesn't relent. No, they want blood. They're shouting for him to be beaten and killed in the most excruciating way on the cross. That word excruciating, the origin of it, literally translates to pain and death from crucifixion. And these same people who a few days earlier were shouting with joy at his arrival and were overjoyed in his presence have now turn their backs on him and want him to be killed. And so finally, Pilate has no choice but to grant their command. And then comes the worst 15 to 18 hours that you could ever possibly imagine. And when you think about the difficult time that Jesus went through, I don't want us to get hung up on thinking about just how gross it is, though it is, how disgusting it was, how brutal it was. But I want you to know that everything he went through, he went through because he loves you. The Bible tells us that he endured it with joy because he loves you so much and wanted to take away all the sin and shame that you feel and offer you grace. And so Jesus is sentenced to death on the cross and they just beat the mess out of him. Like they whip him till the skin falls off his back. They pull the beard right out of his face. They spit on him. They hit him, they hurl insults at him, and this whole time he just does nothing. He says nothing. And finally, he's led to a place called the skull where nails are driven into his hands and his feet, and he's hung on a cross. In a lot of the art that we might see or images we might have in our head of this, we see like the cross raised way up in the air. Historically, crucifixions were done on the ground level. Jesus would have been eye to eye with all these people mocking him and beating him and spitting on him. And they mocked him by, by placing a crown of thorns on his head and then they fed him sour wine, which at first when I read that, it got me thinking like, is this like, like a war movie where there's like, they have a prisoner and they give them a drink from their flask? What's actually happening is they would take a rag, wrap it around the end of a stick, dip that into sour wine and they would use that to sterilize their toilets. And that's what they stuck in Jesus' mouth. And what did Jesus say? Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's incredible. Two men were being crucified with him, one on each side. One of them mocked Jesus. He said, aren't you the son of God? If you really are, then why don't you free yourself and while you're at it, free us as well? But the other one rebuked him saying, don't you fear God? We deserve to be here. Our crimes led us here. We should be here. But this guy has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you go home to your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, today in a few hours, you will be with me in paradise. Do you know why this is such an amazing text here, an amazing story? Because that guy never gets a chance to go back and clean himself up. He doesn't get to go live a morally good life. He doesn't get to go and say sorry for anything he's ever done. He doesn't get to go and give his time to charities. He just gets to die. And in his dying moments, he accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And Jesus says, forgiven, come home with me. It gives me such hope that he could save a wretch like me. And then suddenly, darkness overcame the earth and Jesus breathed his last. See, before Jesus died on the cross, the Old Testament sacrificial system, it required you to kill animals all the time, goats, lambs. Do you know how disgusting that would be to be around? Like, do you think the lamb just accepted that it was going to get killed? Like, it was probably squirming before it was stabbed. Can you imagine the sound it would have made? The smell that the blood would have given off? That would have been a disgusting scene. That's our sin. And and so Jesus says, hey, a suitable sacrifice has never been found. Save the lambs. I'm going to take their place once and for all because I love you. And he went through all of that on our behalf. And then three days later, when when some women went to tend to Jesus' body, they found that the massive stone that sealed the tomb was rolled away, but Jesus not inside. And an angel came and told the women, he's not here. He is risen. Jesus' resurrection is proof and the evidence we need to know that our sins are forgiven and paid for once and for all, that grace is available to all of us at any time right now. And not only that, but you're given a new life, new purpose, an identity. You're adopted as sons and daughters of the King. Ephesians 2 sums up this idea we have this morning of the bad news followed by the good news. Look with me at the first three verses here. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we deserved. That's what we deserved. What are the first two words of verse four? But God, but God being rich in mercy, in grace in love because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that grace is available right now, forever. So what do we do with all of this? Let me finish the psalm here and then we'll tie it all together and I'll give you some application here. Verse six of our psalm says, "'Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you "'at a time when you may be found.'" Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The rush of great waters here is referring to the wrath of God. And David is advising those who seek the Lord and rely on him for salvation, saying that if you run to God, the rush of great waters will not touch you. Verse seven, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Verse eight, I will instruct you And teach you. Remember this being a psalm of knowledge and wisdom. Here's the knowledge. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David is speaking from experience here. Because he knows the great availability of God's forgiveness and grace to you. And he says, I exhort you, I plead with you to pray and confess to God right now because his grace is available. You can say, oh, how happy I am right now. Verse nine, he says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed but with bit and brittle or it will not stay near you. So the reason he's introducing these animals because culturally, or I guess even right now, these are animals who won't move unless they're being pulled along, being forced to move. And so David's saying, don't wait around to be dragged to the cross. Don't wait around like an animal. You're not an animal. Get up and accept that grace right now. As one commentator says, one's refusal to be guided by the Lord's kind grace puts him in a class with brute animals. Don't wait around. You're not an animal. You're a child of God. What's on the other side of this? Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We have a real, real enemy who hates everything that I'm saying right now, who doesn't want you to run towards this grace, who wants you to hold everything inside, who wants you to sweep it under the rug because he knows your bones will waste away when you do that. The enemy offers a real false sense of liberty and freedom. The truth is bluntly stated in Proverbs 13 where it says, the way of the transgressor, the way of the sinful man who does not confess is hard. The one who lives a sinful life and doesn't turn to Jesus, their life will be full of sorrow, heartbreak, failure, remorse. You'll waste away A few years ago, I spoke to a group of people where we were talking about this, the cross and running to Jesus and what he did for us. And I asked them at the end, what things do you say to yourself that are eating you up inside that you have not confessed or given to Jesus? Or, or maybe you've given them to him once or twice before, but they still torment you. You know, maybe it's a sinful act you've been a part of that you're ashamed of and haven't given to the Lord. Maybe it's a lie about who you are and your identity. It's an identity outside of Jesus. And the list was heartbreaking. But it was real. And it was jammed full of things Jesus died on the cross for to free them from. Things that he offers you grace and freedom from. Let me read some of these for you and tell me if they sound familiar. I'm a liar, I'm greedy. I can't stop lusting. I'm impure. I worship money. I'm envious. What does Jesus do to all this? Let me show you. Jesus died for all of this. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all of this with him. And he nailed it there with him. So that you could be set free, have forgiveness and grace from it. I'm deceitful. I have no purpose. I'm faithless. I can earn my salvation. Jesus paid for all of it. God doesn't love me. I know better than God. No one likes me. I'm useless, I'm unlovable. Jesus sets us free from all of this. That's why Jesus died. I don't know what it is for you. But if you want to experience the grace of God like you were meant to, if you want to be like David and say, oh, how happy I am that my sins are forgiven, you got to give it to Jesus. That's how you flourish in his grace. That's when you can say like David does in verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why? Because blessed, Oh, how happy, is the one whose transgressions, whose sin is forgiven and covered. That's our Lord and Savior. That's the grace available to you right now. And so as we go into a time of response, I mean, you probably don't have a physical cross in your living room if you want to make one, by all means, but I want you to just, as you are, as you're you're singing, as you're praying, what's on your heart right now that you haven't given to Jesus? I implore you like David to give it to him. Don't be like an animal waiting around. Give it to him today. He wants to set you free from it. He wants to offer you grace from it. And the reason I wanted to use this illustration here is so that you could remember this because this isn't going to be a one-time thing, right? You may have confessed something to Jesus a hundred times. You might have to a hundred times more. So I want you to remember this for tomorrow, for next week, for next month, for next year. You can do this in your heart at any moment. Jesus loves you the same yesterday, today, and forever, and will take you back and will give you grace at any moment. So take it, accept his grace, and flourish like David so that you can say, oh, how happy am I that my sins are forgiven. What a great God we have. What a gracious God we have. Let me pray. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your finished work on the cross. That you take all of us that's wicked, dark, sinful. And you say, I paid for that. You say, we don't have to be, be shaped by that. We don't have to be identified by those things. We don't have to be tormented by those things. We can give it to you because you took it on yourself once and for all on the cross. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that you would help them do the painfully beautiful work of confession, of emptying the darkness of our hearts, emptying our suitcase to you, God, and seeking your grace because it's there. And only when we give it to you, Lord, will we be able to see and say, how blessed am I that my sins are forgiven. So I sense now that even as I'm praying this, Your people have something stirring up in their hearts. I don't know what that thing is, but I pray that you would just give them assurance that you forgive them of that thing. However wicked, however much shame they feel, however much guilt they feel, you paid for that and you love them unconditionally. We need your help, God. We need courage from you. Help us sit underneath the waterfall of your grace now and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.